Happy Sunday to you. Thank you so much for being here as we're finishing our series investigating Jesus. So the question that we've asked each week has been this. That the Bible provides an explanation to who God is. His character, his nature, and it also explains our purpose. Why we exist, why God created us, what we're meant to live for. Then why are people doubting, why are people deconverting, why are people deconstructing or dismissing faith and there's several reasons and maybe you know some people who've walked away from faith or maybe they're deconstructed their faith because of maybe someone in their life maybe a church leader a family member a parent and it was their tone it was how they treated a certain group of people and you saw how they reacted how they acted and you were like i want no parts of this or maybe it was something that a church leader did and you're like no no i want i want no parts of of organized religion whatsoever or maybe it was something that happened within a denomination or within a local church and you're like okay too much i can't do it anymore too much drama too many wounds i can't do it anymore And the concern is that the foundation of our faith has become people. The foundation of our faith has become a denomination. It's become a person, a personality. It's become a platform. And those are all shaky foundations. Like, like if, if your foundation of your faith was me and the things that I said, and you hung on to every word that I said, I mean, I'm going to fail you. And most likely, I'm going to inadvertently fail you. Like, I don't mean to unintentionally. I don't mean to fail you. But it will happen. Like, I had a conversation, and someone got really upset because I didn't visit them. But I had no idea that they had surgery. There are going to be things that I'm going to inadvertently do, I'm going to unintentionally do, that is going to hurt you. And I don't mean to. But when your faith is in me instead of the one that can only hold your worship. He's the only one that can provide us a firm foundation. Man, our faith will fall. Because the Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on any of those things. It rises and falls on the identity of a single person. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary and Joseph, doing the impossible. And so if you're curious about faith, or if you're returning to faith, or you find yourself losing faith, then here's the question to wrestle with. Is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote reliable accounts of actual events? Simply, if, if what they wrote is true, then we have no reason not to believe. Because the thing that changed everything was the resurrection. And so over the last four weeks, and now as we're going to conclude, we're going to be wrapping up Luke's biography of Jesus. And Luke wasn't one of the original followers of Jesus. In fact, he wasn't even a Jew. Luke was a Greek who believed in the pantheon of the gods. And something happened that made him leave the pantheon of the gods and follow Jesus. Something happened. Something impossible, something incredible happened for him to lose all of that and say, no, no, it's not real. 
this is real. So this is how Luke introduces his biography and makes his introduction. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, what he's saying is, I didn't copy anything. I did this on my own. I did my own homework. I did my own research. Everything is legit. He says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. There are some things that some people were writing that, that I thought needed to be in there, especially from a Greek perspective. He said, I wrote this for you, most excellent Theophilus. And Theophilus was a Roman official who may have financed Luke's journey to write about the life of Jesus. And so that you may know, Theophilus, I want you to know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, that what you have been taught is true. So Luke's not writing religious literature. He's documenting someone's right. He's writing a biography and telling someone's story, a story that took place during his lifetime. I mean, he knew the main characters of Jesus' story. He he met with Peter. He talked with Mary, Jesus' mom. He, He met James, the brother of Jesus. He also met with Paul. And through Paul's message, Luke became a convert. He became a follower of Jesus. And so what happened at the end of Jesus' life is the, is the why was worth telling in the first place. And what happened at the end of the story made sense and it created the context of everything that came before it. So here's how the end of the story begins. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. See, none of the gospel writers describe the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't don't need to go into the details of it because it was the first century. It wasn't necessary. Everyone was familiar with crucifixion. They'd seen one and they'd seen the aftermath of one. It would be like me telling you, I got to go to the DMV. You know what that's like. Or I'm going to get a root canal. We all know what that's like. See, the Romans perfected crucifixion. It was a way to keep a man alive as long as possible to torture him. And crucifixion was much as a deterrent as it was a punishment. And it was used mostly for criminals, but never Roman citizens. This is the surprise beginning of the end of the story. Jesus said. So while on the cross, Jesus said. And it was their most remarkable and unsettling thing imaginable. There was, it was almost like Luke did a double take. And mostly he may not have believed the first person that told him. And maybe he went to Mary Magdalene and said, Mary, okay, Jesus was on the cross. What happened? Well, Jesus said. And then he went to Peter, what Jesus said. Then he went to John, what Jesus said. Then he went to his mom, what Jesus said. And he's just, he's just startled. He's just stunned by it because none of the gods were willing to do what Jesus was about to say. They would never have found themselves saying this. 
There's something different about Jesus. And maybe all along Luke was like, yeah, kind of go figure, right? Because every story that I've heard, Jesus was different. Jesus was unique. And Jesus invites us to refuse to be like the people who don't like us. There's going to be times where people are going to throw their insecurity on you. They're going to mistreat you. They're going to power up on you. They're going to abuse their authority. And if we understand what Jesus taught, when someone considers us a relational enemy, a social enemy, Jesus invites us not to return the favor and instead follow his example. And so what did Jesus say that was so incredible, so remarkable? And from the cross, very close to taking his final breath, Jesus said these words. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. See, they thought they did, but they didn't. The proof is that when they looked up from what they were doing, they went back doing it. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. What did he say? I don't know. I wasn't really paying attention. Who cares? Your turn. See, forgive them seems weak, passive, and giving up all hope. And by how we determine success and wins and losses in this world today as humans, Jesus was losing, his followers were losing, his mom was losing, and the religious leaders, they were winning. His fellow colleagues, the rabbis, they were winning. The people were winning. Pilate was winning. The Roman Empire was winning. And worse yet, when they came for him, he didn't even resist. And here was the tension that Jesus told his followers to get some swords. And then he prayed. He asked God, God, if there is a plan B allowed to happen, and there was no plan B. He knew what he needed to do. And so when Judas came and betrayed him with a kiss, he did not resist. And even though Peter had his sword out because he was told to get his sword and he got the sword and he cut off a soldier's ear, Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And he put the ear back on the soldier. He didn't resist. And he did not even allow his followers to resist. There is only plan A. See, forgive them is so un-everything to us. It's why we would rather believe than follow. That's why some of us would rather admire than follow. See, following Jesus is inconvenient and it's costly. It's why Jesus has so many admirers and so few followers. And which one are you? Which one am I? Which one are we? See, the way of Jesus is unnerving, un-American, un-Liam Neeson-like, and unmanly. And let me call a quick timeout. I'm not saying that if someone breaks you in your home, you don't show them Smith & Wesson. I'm not saying that. When someone is willing to physically harm you, this is not what I'm talking about. Or if you're a soldier, or if you've been a soldier, you've been overseas, or maybe you're a contractor, I, I totally understand. Yes, there are physical enemies that we have to deal with. But this is at a relational issue. 
we see the tension that when it's played out, it stirs something in us. It no longer looks weak, but it looks strong when we see this forgiveness beginning to be played out. If you look up Rachel Denhollander and her address to Larry Nasser in the courtroom during the sentencing phase of their trial for years of sexual assault of girls and young women, Rachel was the first woman to publicly accuse Nasser, the former USA gymnastics team doctor, of sexual abuse. So look it up. Read it and tell me following Jesus is for the weak. Perhaps if you look up Anthony Thompson's words to the avowed white supremacist who gunned down his wife Myra and eight others in 2015 at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. 48 hours later, he went to the shooter's bond hearing. Thompson is a Navy vet, I mean a man's man, and he forgave his wife's murder and promised to pray for his salvation. Does this sound like following Jesus is for the weak? Like you know better, right? We all know better that Jesus invites us to be changed for the best. And through his death, he showed us a better way to live. And, and maybe Luke was reminding, and going back in his memory bank and going through all the things that he wrote about Jesus' life through the different interviews. And maybe this came to mind. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Because there's going to be times that when you have to say no to you, and I know it's not easy because there's ambition, there's appetites, there's rules of the day, but there's going to be times where we're going to have to say no to you. I'm going to have to say no to me. You will have to say no to you. And here's, here's the tension piece of all that. You will neither act nor react like everybody else around you. And that can be hard, and that can be difficult, and that can almost feel impossible. And Jesus says, and take up their cross. Like if you're carrying a cross of the first century, you understood that your independence was over. And here's the challenge. Jesus adds a distinct word. It's the difference between an admirer and a follower. Notice the next word Jesus says, daily. You and I, we can pray that initial prayer to sort, of, to sort of get into God's family, right? To get saved, to be born again. It's when we recognize that we're a sinner, our sin has separated us from God, and Jesus came to take our sin. He died in our place. And when we believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, we become part of God's family. But that doesn't mean that our sin nature is eradicated. It doesn't mean that we still don't deal with sin. It means that we're coming from a different place and dealing with it. It means that every day I need to make a daily decision that I'm going to take up my cross. That each morning, it's not about my kingdom, it's about his kingdom. And the reason why I do that is because Jesus is my king and my leader. And I'm, I'm supposed to submit, and I will submit to all I am, to all of him. And I'm carrying a cross and abandoning my independence. It's not about my reputation. It's not about my agenda. It's about his reputation. It's about his agenda, his mission over mine. And then he says this, and follow me. 
And that's what that means to follow Jesus. It means to get in line. It means to deny ourselves. It means to give up independence. It means I submit to him and follow him. The alternative is to be independent and small, appetite-driven, consumer-driven, closed-handed, and cleansed fist with things. And notice what Jesus continues to teach. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. This sounds really un-American. I mean, whatever we cling to diminishes over time and it loses its value. I mean, think about it. If you hoard seeds, it will not grow. It will not produce a crop. They will rot. If you live for yourself, you only have yourself to show for yourself. And Jesus, he invites us to invest our lives, our talent, our time, our resources. He's inviting you and I to give our lives away for something other than us, something bigger than us. So we'll someday have something to show for it. This is the invitation of a lifetime. It's an invitation to do something noticeable and noteworthy that's not about us. It's about him. And so Jesus continues, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Like, What good is it to think that you're winning the whole time only to discover that you actually are losing? You're playing the wrong game. What good is that? It's no good. What, what leads to just chaos? frustration, anger, regret. And Luke would say, Jesus is inviting us to something different. He was the king who came to reverse the order of things. And in the end, we finally understood and stand that Jesus is inviting us to something bigger that will last beyond our lifetime. And Jesus played, and he lived this forgiveness thing out so well. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, catch this, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. If he really is a king, if he really is God's Messiah, the final king of Israel, then he should act like a king. Kings don't allow themselves to be taken without a fight. He's not a king. Kings do something for themselves. Kings put themselves ahead of everyone else. And if he was a king, he would do those things. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourselves. See, they, they were serving under a king who followed the example of how kings conducted themselves. And what they didn't know was if Jesus had saved himself, he would have lost his ability to save them. If he had saved himself, he would not have been able to save you and save me. He was the king who put others first to the bitter, bloody, painful, and shameful end. See, two kings... Two kings remained that day. One remained alive on that Friday, and the other was about to die. Who was the name of the king, the emperor of Rome, who remained alive after Jesus' death? I can't remember his name, can you? 
It was Tiberius. He was the most powerful man in the world then and now as a footnote who we don't even remember in the crucifixion story of a rabbi who did the impossible a couple of days later. So who are you going to follow? What are you going to follow? Who's going to rule you? Who's going to be your king? You, your appetites, your ambition. Who has the final say in your life? Are you an admirer? Or are you a follower? And isn't there something disingenuous about accepting Jesus' forgiveness but resisting his invitation to follow? He's invited us to follow, and yes, that's the best decision. It's a better way of life, but for some of us, it just seems disingenuous that we're willing to get salvation, like we're willing to trust Him with our souls, but we're not willing to trust Him with our lives. And Christians, followers of Jesus, why should anyone else outside of our faith take it seriously if we don't? The foundation of our faith is in Jesus And he's asking us to follow him, which means it's a daily decision to submit to him as our king. And Luke continues, and it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. There were two curtains about 12 inches thick. One protected the Holy of Holies, and the one separated the temple from the outer court. One was torn from top to bottom. We don't know which one. I have an educated guess which one. But what it signified was that God left his temple to seek, find, and reclaim his lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. The temple error had come to an end. No more sacrifices. And everybody was now invited. You no longer had to go to a high priest. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. The cross took Jesus' breath away, but his death took our sin away. Jesus' resurrection that we're going to be looking at next Sunday took our excuses away. And so the question is, are you an admirer or are you a follower? And Luke would tell you to follow. So before you go, there are three questions to keep the conversation going. Number one, take a moment today or tomorrow to read Anthony Thompson or Rachel Den Hollander's courtroom speeches to the convicted criminals who wronged them. What emotions do they evoke in you and why? Number two, how do you justly accept the forgiveness of God while resisting the lordship of Christ? And then number three, are you more an admirer than a follower? If so, what's keeping you from being all in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful that Jesus went ahead with plan A. We're so thankful that he did not save himself. He did not put himself 
above everyone else, but that he submitted and surrendered to your plan. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are called to forgive. Jesus modeled it so well, and Father, we are asking that you will give us the strength from the Holy Spirit living in us to forgive those who have wronged us and have hurt us. No matter how deep our wound is, Holy Spirit, I ask that you will help us to forgive as Jesus forgave. For those of us who are on the fence about Christianity, I ask that we would investigate Jesus in the resurrection. We would not be putting our hopes and our faith in other people, but it would be Jesus and Jesus alone. Help us to go out this week looking at ways and how we can be all in. What are the ways that we have to give up some of our independence to follow? In Jesus' name, amen.